0: From Eleven FS, this is FinTech Insider News. Today, a primary bid wins SoftBank backing. New Flux CEO calls paltry number of female fintech bosses insane. And children's pocket money is feeling the pinch. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 606 of FinTech Insider. My name is David Brier and I'm joined by my Eleven FS colleague Nazir Ahmed. How's it going, Naz? I mean, it's been a busy week. I, I was say joking a second ago you probably felt we were talking to me already for for most of it, but uh, we've got another hour to get through. It's going well, thanks David, and perish the thought. And uh, I mean, I was just saying a second ago off air, but like I haven't done this for a couple of months. so like uh, I've never been nervous doing a podcast before. It's actually quite exciting. like uh, get get that buzz back, get that kick, you know, get the adrenaline going. It'll be nice. Absolutely. All right, well, let's get on with it. And as always, we are joined by some super duper awesome guests. First up, making their fintech insider debut, we have Kevin Chong, who is the co-head of Outward VC. Thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. How's it going?
1: Good, David. Thank you. I'm excited
0: to be here, and thanks for having me. Well, I mean, give me, you know, bear with me. Like, say, I haven't done this for a few months, so like, I'm going to be a bit rusty. But um, why don't you start us off with um, telling us a little bit about Outward VC?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, I'd love to do that. So, I mean, Outward VC, we're a London-based venture capital firm bridging the gap between seed and Series A funding for uh, British and European fintech startups. Uh, We have a very broad definition of uh, fintech um, with our portfolio spanning the full range of financial services across B2B and B2C, as well as adjacent areas that we feel will uh, impact on financial services, um, we started outward because we saw a gap in, in in the market where you know UK fintech startups had limited options when it came to uh, their sort of first post seed funding round, um, and so we we started outward to address that gap.
0: Very cool. What's on the shopping list? I mean, uh, you know, given everything that's happening in fintech right now, there's there's lots of things that must look at very attractive out there, right?
1: There are indeed. I mean we, you know, we we see anywhere between 50 to 100 startups a month. Um, and uh, you know, currently we have 17 in the portfolio and we're sort of looking to do at least 3 or so uh, more new investments in this in this
0: quarter. Fantastic. Well, there's I mean there's loads of startups that listen to this. Your your mailbox is going to be inundated after this, I can imagine, but uh so brace yeah, bring yourself. It on. <laughs> well, it's always nice to have choice, isn't it? It really is. Uh, and making a welcome return to FinTech Insider, we have Ronnie Barbosa, who is the CEO and co-founder of Flux. How's it going? Lovely to have you back.
2: Hello, hello. Thank you. Really good to be back.
0: I mean, you've changed jobs, but we're going to talk about that in the news in a little bit. But um, but for anybody who doesn't know, can you tell us a little bit more about Flux?
2: Absolutely. So uh, Flux is a data infrastructure business solving A really simple problem, which is it's insane that today we go from using 21st century uh, contactless payment cards to literally a 100 BC paper receipt as the only record of what we buy. And when you really dig into that problem, you realize it exists because there is no centralized database of receipt data. There's no infrastructure in order to digitize it. And so we've built it. We have, uh, we're connecting some of the largest banks in the country, working with Barclays, Starling and Monzo, some of the largest retailers in the country, uh, like Just Eat, H&M and several others to digitize this data and power our product suite, including uh, Flux Receipts and a few other exciting updates I'll share in a minute.
0: Very, very cool. Well, it's fantastic to have you back on the show. Uh, We'll get to the news in a second in terms of everything you've just been talking about. Um, But we better really get back into it because there's a, a hell of a lot to get through this week. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that if I just keep chatting. I guess, am I? So uh, again, I'm rusty. I'm sorry, Alex, on the edit of this. You're going to have to do really hard work, I'm afraid. All right, let us get into it then. The first story was over on the Financial Times, which said retail investor platform Primary Bid wins SoftBank backing. So SoftBank has led a 190 million fundraise for Primary Bid, a startup that allows UK retail investors to buy shares in initial public offerings and other fundraisings. The fundraise has also been backed by, I'm going to definitely mispronounce this, Hedrosophia. Not sure if I got that right. There's a few people nodding. Probably got that right. I'm going to Hedo move on. Head
2: Sophia, I think. Yeah, Sophia. There. there we go. Thank you very good, much. Good bunch of people.
0: There we go. Uh, the investment group run by venture capitalist Ian Osborne, as well as many others. The latest fundraising values the fintech at around about 700 million, according to a person familiar with the details. In the past 18 months, more than 150 IPO and follow-on transactions have been listed on primary bid in the UK. It has also expanded into Europe with the first transactions in France as well. The company plans to recruit new US and EU management teams to lead its expansion, as well as use the money to invest in new services and new products. Uh, Kevin, I mean, it makes a great deal of sense to be coming to you on uh, on this one, doesn't it? As um, you've previously backed primary bid Series A and Series B rounds. So, I mean, what do you see in this? Is this primary bid getting bigger and bigger? Is their influence on the market going to be felt greater and greater? How do you see this one piling out?
1: Well, I just just to give you some background, we we invested in this company in this business back in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, we were we were the first institutional investor to to make up our minds and to offer investment. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't the easiest round to put together at that time, to be honest. It was it was early days for Primary Bid, and they'd only proven their model with. Uh, a very limited number of small cap issuers. Uh, but for us, it was two things. Right, it's, you, know, you asked me what I saw. Um, equity capital markets is obviously a, a huge market. However, it, it remains a market where market practices haven't evolved since, since the beginning. Um, you have a huge asymmetry in the way big institutional investors are treated versus, uh, versus the everyday person. You know what's called the public market, in many respects, isn't really a public market. So I mean, we saw an opportunity for this market to be opened up, to be democratized, and and fundamentally to be improved. Right. Um, so that's number one. Um, I mean, number two, obviously, it was a, it was the founders, uh, Annan and Kieran, had a lot of domain expertise and the hunger and drive uh, really resonated with us from the very first from the very first meeting. Um, so you know that was that was back in 2019. Um, you know a lot has happened since, as you've just uh, said. You know they've they've a huge number of transactions have gone through the platform, um, and there's a lot of international expansion uh, that will be happening with with this new round of funding.
0: Hmm. I mean, you you use the D word, the magic D word that investors look for, democratization, and actually, I mean, they but they really have done it, haven't they? They've actually you know over that period of time, like you say, from 2019 to now, we've seen a, a real dramatic increase in terms of the amount of people that are actually holding shares of some form. Uh, you know, it's something like an, a third of all Brits now actually have access and, and uh, ha- actually have shares. But the world's changed so dramatically in that space. And like you say, with, you know, as we touched on it the, with the, the details, with more and more IPOs and more and more people wanting to own a a slice of the companies that they really buy into, then this market's just going to get bigger and bigger, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it definitely is. Um, you know, I, I think I think the appetite from retail investors has always been there. I remember years and years ago meeting startups figuring out ways to tap into it. You know, I mean, you're at a pub, you're you're drinking a beer that you really like. You know, why can't you take out your phone and buy some shares in that in that beer company? Right. Um, I think it's quite logical that you know now we have Deliveroo offering food or or shares uh, in their app, uh, and that's what that's uh, what
0: Primary did. Primary bit did. We should, we should say, uh, don't don't buy shares when you're drunk, everybody. You know, that's it's not good. <laughs> Probably not good financial planning. Uh, I'll be honest. Like, you know, there's there a lot of things you can do spontaneously. But, uh, you know, Deliveroo and shares, there's a different trade-off on those things. But, uh, I mean, Naz, do you, do you own any shares in any companies that you love so much you wanted to own a bit of?
3: Uh, oh, until you said the love word, I was going to say yes. <laughs> uh, I own shares with companies that have previously employed me. Uh, no it's interesting oh, the, the only thing I was going to add was also I think the demands there but also I think it's it's traditionally been an, an underserved segment of the market you know a lot of the traditional players have aband, abandoned retail a while ago to focus on high end so um, it's, I'm not surprised to see a lot of expansion a lot of expansion in there um, obviously that democratization does carry risks in terms of the type of people who are going to invest but there are you know it can it can be done well to mitigate that if it's done properly um but yeah it's, it's interesting it, you know it, it's um it's definitely more than just a demand that's been uncorked by the pandemic it's always been there i'm sure the pandemic has accelerated it as it has with other things but you, you know it that mark has been there for a while and it, it's really beginning to get exploited
0: yeah i guess with the look savings rates have been like zero for for a very long period of time. People have been looking for, you know, cryptocurrency sounds exciting and you know very flamboyant, but you might just lose all your money. Like stocks and you know shares has a a very long track record of of performing, you know. And I think the the challenge is always with with these types of things. And you know, we've had you know players on from free trade or the various different players in that sense as well. That actually, it's one of those ones that you know the the. Instant gratification of of modern day life, when coupled with the long term investment requirement for for really to benefit from uh, this type of investment thing, getting that trade off is 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 really a, a fine balance. But Vroni, what do you what do you think on this one?
2: I think it's really exciting. I think what I like the most about it is the um, opening up uh, access and really driving the shift towards what I would probably call the financial kind of re-education or education of a much larger part of the population. You know, you see that with free trade, primary bid, uh, the crowdfunding opportunities, and really driving uh, something I think is much needed, which is a personal finance uh, education and, and the value of, um, you know, some stable and some risk-based investing. So I think it's amazing. I I've seen retail investing for a while, but it's never been so accessible. So my, my first job was at Morgan Stanley on the uh, debt issuance side. And we always had like Morgan Stanley investment management coming in, um, small tickets to, to the deals we were doing. And they were representing, you know, tens of thousands of retail investors that they were working with at the time. Um, but even that had such high barriers to entry for those retail investors looking to get involved. So I think it's amazing to see to see the opening up of of that space.
0: It's it is and as you say the the opening up of it is not just access it's it's the way in which it's talked about the 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 language that's being used the as you say the sort of education around that as well. Um I mean it feels like actually the the industry as a whole is is doing a lot more to, to make it accessible, isn't it? To, to make it something that's not, you know, you need a a nice man in a suit to turn up to your house in order to explain all of these things. In, a, in And that actually, you know, going back to the democratization word, you know, a big part of all of that is always not just access, it's education, isn't it? As you say, Veronique?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. Well, I mean, Kevin... Well done. Seems like a good investment. You know, it's uh, it's paying off. The company's doing really well. If all of them that you invest in do this well, then, you you know, you guys are onto a real a real good trick there, for sure. Well, that's the plan. <laughs> it's always the plan. Awesome. All right. On our basis, uh, we'll move on to the next story. But this one, I, I guess with the success that they've had, the scaling that they've done, uh, it won't be the last time that we'll be talking to them or talking about them on FinTech Insider, for sure. All right. Next up, we had a story that was covered in a, a number of different places, but we picked it up over on AltFi. Is Newflux CEO calls paltry number of female fintech bosses insane? So, uh, Flux co-founder, uh, it feels weird talking about you when you're, you're here, uh, ba- <laughs> Barbosa, <laughs> that lady, um, has been promoted to CEO and hit out at the paltry number of global female fintech CEOs, calling it insane. Uh, in a LinkedIn post announcing her move from COO. Barboza pointed to an industry figures showing less than 5.6% of fintech CEOs around the world are women. Uh, She wrote that this is insane, which I've said now five times. Uh, I'm proud to nudge that statistic forward in the right direction and to have a strong team of diverse leaders around me within Flux, helping to do much-needed rebalancing around these statistics. Barboza will be replacing outgoing CEO uh, Matty Kuznan-Ross, who will be taking on the role of president. Uh, Flux also announced that more than one million customers are now using its services in the uk Uh, ronnie firstly congratulations that's super duper cool Um, what did you do to celebrate the 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 move because i mean that's a obviously you've been in the the organization as ceo i mean founder of, of the company um but it must feel different moving into the ceo job
2: it does it feels um Somewhat different with with a few extra responsibilities, but I think something I guess most founders would say is I've literally done every job now at Flux uh, with the exception of engineering. Although, I keep joking to my co-founder and CTO that he should watch out. But um, <laughs> so it, it's I'm lucky in the sense that I've seen every part of the business at this stage. So it, it feels a slightly different, but. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal, and I'm I'm really really excited for what's next. Um, especially after having hit these big milestones, which we're um, so proud of. We, you know, since uh, 2019, this has been like a 10x growth in our receipt numbers. Uh, we went from, uh, you know, one to 11 million receipts now delivered, and the million customer mark was a very proud moment for us. And we're seeing about a football stadium's worth of new customers joining every single month. So it's a, it's a pleasure to watch.
0: Well, that's fantastic. I mean, I I know, I mean, and this isn't the first time as we mentioned earlier on, you've been on the show. We've spoken to you a number of times in the past and actually every time we talk to you, flux is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and like you say, when the early days getting, you know, Starling and Monzo on board and then like say getting a gigantic organization like, like Barclays on there as well. I mean, I, I have the bone to pick with you guys. If I'm honest with you, you're the reason I can't tell my wife that I got a salad at KFC anymore because that receipts in in, in our monster statement. But other than that, I love you guys. You know. Um, but um, I mean, what what was was this something that was sort of planned, uh, you know, for quite a long period of time, or or is it something that sort of changed from a circumstances perspective?
2: So it's been discussion in discussion for a little while. Um, the opportunity came up uh, between both of us to have a really. Honest, open discussion about uh, what was next. Now that we were on track to hit these like extremely significant milestones, really completing kind of phase one of a four-phase vision that we've had for the business since since day one. And you know, Maddie and I have worked together now for over six years across two startups. We we met at as early employees at Revolut, left to start Flux, and we have a really really deep respect for each other. So. It was a positive, open conversation, and we made the decision. Um, and he, luckily, uh, is moving into his other core passion in food tech. And we're also very happy that he'll be staying close to the company, on the board and as president, and yeah, doing what we do best, which is you know working well together on strategy.
0: Very cool. I mean, organizations definitely go through sort of different phases, don't they? And different, you know, different direction, different leadership is required in those different directions. I mean, obviously, uh, I think I, I, I sort of uh, quoted you 18,000 times when I gave you the introduction there in terms of your your points around FEMA representation at CEO level within FinTech. But what what was it that you or or why did you feel the need to, to highlight that so much as, as, as part of that transition? I mean, is that obviously this is something that matters to you deeply you know or greatly to to sort of bring it into the equation as part of the announcement but, yeah. but what do you feel is the uh in, i guess the inhibitor do you think in terms of this space because you know financial services is is a pretty male dominated industry you know full stop um but that's obviously something that is changing but maybe just not at the pace that is required
2: so i I was, you know, typing my update, and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to know what that number would be, and I knew it was going to be low, but when I googled to see what the actual stat was on female fintech CEOs around the world, seeing that it was less than six percent was, was truly really shocking, um, and I think I wish I could say I knew what the problem was and here's how we fix it. Um, but it's, it's it's so deep rooted. I, I wouldn't know really where to start. And all I could say is sharing my own experience. Um, you know, with some of the women I work with, uh, even from my own experience, women aren't as pushy typically. And I don't know why. I don't know where this comes from. But it's it's absolutely pervasive. Like you're negotiating promotion, salary changes, and I can tell you the difference between the men on my team versus the women on my team and how they negotiate is night and day, like absolute world's part. And these are people who've worked at the same organizations, been to the same universities, same, uh, you know, schooling, even how, like, how do you explain that really deep difference in approach? And I think I'll give you another example is in how, and this is really quoting from like Sheryl Sandberg's book, where she talks a lot about this, but, something you might notice. And if you do, I urge you to call it out on your, in your teams is women's writing style as well on that note is super conditional. It's, could we please, would you mind if we, if it's possible? And at first, you know, I might think that's like a British or Canadian thing, but like, no, that's, it's just like a, it seems to be quite central. And I, I don't know where that comes from media or, or otherwise, but I, I think you know we have to look at these stats and really think about how we get to to the root problems in order to actually solve this.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's um, I mean, you can point at you know upbringing, you can point at education, but you know, when we look at investment in you know founding uh, female. Uh, fintechs it is that was a that was way too many f's in a one sentence there that was very difficult for me to get through (laughs) Um, but being in a situation where the, the investment is so limited at that level as well then it's it's not just sort of uh, you know a, a multitude of accidents there's a more of a systemic problem that that sort of sits within that sense which and and actually i mean this isn't just in founding of of, of businesses when it comes to fintech, but actually when we look at pretty much every business around the world there is a, a skew towards this setup and, it, and it's interesting as you say ronnie with with regards to the um you know, the points around things like negotiation. Well, actually, is it for us to teach women to negotiate like men do? Or is it about actually changing the way in which the game is structured? That means people don't have to fight for those things, that actually it's something that is offered. So, I mean, I don't think we're going to solve this in the next sort of 40 minutes, I'll be honest with you, because if we could, (laughs) that would be fantastic. But it's one of those things that I think it is worth continually highlighting that, statistically this is not a you know a, a a small rounding error that to your point fundamentally there is just a difference in expectation there's a difference in investment there's a difference in you know outcomes that people expect these things to get to and very often it's put a upside with you know like like you say it. you know people don't negotiate in their right way or you know having kids or whatever like all of these different sort of you know excuses but they don't explain the dramatic difference in in the numbers. Kevin, I'm not going to put you on the, on, on the spot here to be like, speak up for the VC community and like, why have you guys done this? But like, you know, investments are so heavily going skewed towards male-founded fintech companies. Um, what is that about? I mean, is it just a, a male fintechs uh, or founded fintechs better just about making up stories about the billion pound valuation they're going to get to or what do you think it is uh,
1: look uh, i mean look i mean firstly congratulations veronic I, I think it's a uh, fantastic promotion and you know i hope I hope that much more, we 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 hear you know much more similar developments um, i mean on your question david i think that without a doubt the venture community has a big role to play here there's a lot of work to be done and when you look at the numbers, it's very shocking, right? The gap. But yeah, you know, I think there are many layers here to unpick. And just to mention the outward team, I mean, we we're a super diverse team. And I can tell you that I think the diversity really helps us when it comes to making decisions. Uh, and I think the same should be the case for the companies that we invest in. So, like, so even though I think at this point in time you're going to find the reality is. A lot of these businesses, a lot of these startups are led by a sort of very narrow demographic. But I think the important thing is that we're all encouraging the founders and the teams to be more diverse, right? And VCs can play a role there because we sit on the boards, um, we're on a cap table, we do have influence. And, you know, we should be encouraging the teams to be more diverse, and I am, you know, I think to be fair, that is happening. I am seeing that, and I, and and that will, I think, over time, uh, lead to, you know, lead to better outcomes. I mean, we are beginning to see uh, a lot of women coming up up the ranks. Um, I mean, not just women, just just diversity in general coming up coming up the ranks. Uh, so, I mean, I'm hopeful that you know, when we talk about it, we if we have this conversation again in a, in, in a couple of years' time, um, the numbers would be would be much better um but but yeah just to say i mean without a doubt the bc community has a big role to play here
0: yeah and and i guess i mean the the context obviously veronique of of you know financial services much broader uh, i mean we are seeing and actually i mean uh allison rose you know nas used to work at uh rbs natwest i mean allison rose uh, being appointed the CEO of, of natwest has made a, a huge amount of difference in terms of actually the I think public perception but also the internal uh structuring of, of natwest and actually bringing dni and and actually making not just from a, a tokenistic in you know going to the market and saying we're doing a thing thing but actually fundamentally making changes happen in the structure so you know in the broader financial services landscape do you think we are seeing enough
3: enough change that was a a very loaded question nas there but good luck with that one i'm sure probably kevin would say that those considerations are more important to an investor than they were say five years ago or six years ago it's for me it's pace of change because you know it strikes me that if we continue at this pace where we're not going to get to some sort of equality until about 2257 which is probably a bit too late and i um I wonder if we'll ever get that pace without some sort of more aggressive intervention at like a statutory or or state level. Um, I'm sure it will start happening organically and indeed is. But I'm not sure where you'll you'll get that real injection without that sort of external intervention. The market will do it, but it will take a long time.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think, like the the, we're starting to see some really positive changes in the industry. I mean, I look across uh, my immediate landscape. You know, we I have incredibly trailblazing women around me with Anne Anne at Starling, Sujata at Monzo, like Kirsty Morris and Megan Kaywood at Barclays. So it's it's amazing to see see that level of seniority with with our key key partners. But I think what we are starting to see. Is you know, and the way that I've always thought about the world and any kind of key problems we're going after, which explains a lot about how we thought about flux in the first place, which is really trying to break it down into like what's the what's the actual first principle like problem here. And I think Naz, you're absolutely spot on. Like there are some structural issues still around, um, you know, pat paternity, maternity, shared parental leave, that are getting so much better but still like there's not the same level of approach or rights given to uh, I don't know if you would disagree David but I think to to fathers and fathers to be um their rights aren't as fiercely protected and in their interest to stay or or you know to take on sometimes shared parental leave with their partner is not as fiercely protected and that that leads to imbalance. It's it's natural. Um, so th- there's a lot, I think, to think about there and a lot of countries getting it right, uh, especially in the Nordics. But yeah, I think things are improving, but I agree the, the pace is is something to think about. But I think something I always struggle with with, with a diversity conversation is I think um, I never personally want to come across as you know, demanding something or, or asking for diversity consideration where, there's, where it's not deserved or where there's no, like, meritocracy. I think a lot of times, like, diversity conversations can come across as not recognizing, you know, within business, like, the first step is it's a meritocracy. We're, we're running a business here. But I think when you look at these stats and you say, you see that kind of 6% number, it's just so, so far off that, that there's got to be something... Yeah, structurally wrong in the system.
1: Look, I, I, I say I do agree with Naz that uh, you know, some in, intervention is required, I and mean, we can't just be completely organic. Right? And uh, and a lot of it has to do with you know, how we, um, you know, how, what we do about the workplace, right? Uh, I mean, you take something as simple as like, I mean, you to take something like like the menopause and and the fact that it's not covered anywhere in in in, a, in private medical insurance, right? So businesses are out there, they're giving their employees private medical insurance. That doesn't cover something like that. So it's, it's those sorts of little things that have to change to to encourage women to continue working and the workplace to be more diverse. Um, so, and, you know, the, the employers that are addressing those sorts of issues um, will, you know, will, will make a difference.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the world where, uh, you know, employees are becoming scarcer and scarcer resource because talent is needed to make all of these businesses successful it will be the organizations that provide those environments that actually end up winning in that sense because people will vote with their feet they will move to organizations where you know they are represented and they do want to work so it's um it it is a all of these different tensions kind of bring things to it i mean for any to your point around i mean my experience like men and women are definitely treated differently in consultancies like it is just fundamental like i remember having uh, my youngest and expected to be back in like next week you know and it's like that's the biggest moment in your entire life and actually it wasn't just an expectation of me that i would be you know putting the business first and getting back into business and things and it's like actually that imbalance just breeds you know, all of these things, it's, you know, symptoms and diseases, isn't it? You know, we've got to kind of address the disease because all of these things are just the symptoms. But um, but anyway, I, like genuinely, if I thought we could, you know, nail this one in the next 30 minutes, I'd just like, let's workshop it for the next four, for the, over the four of us for the next 40. Uh, but I don't think we will. I think it's going to be a bit of a process. And on that note, we better wrap up the first part of the show. We're going to hear from some sponsors and we'll be back with you very shortly.
1: What role will blockchain play in the future of financial services? How are innovative fintechs expanding access to online banking in Africa? And would more bankers in orange jumpsuits change the way money laundering is perceived? These are just some of the big questions you'll explore on Uncover, the Comply Advantage podcast. Subscribe today and join them for conversations featuring the latest fast-growing fintechs, product innovations, and financial crime challenges. Just search Uncover Comply Advantage – wherever you get your podcasts. Decoding is back. Our hit video series returns, and this time we're getting under the skin of banks. Over the course of 11 episodes, we're joined by key industry experts to ask, what are the challenges facing traditional banks in 2022? From payment rails to lending, we lay out the landscape before looking at the problems banks are facing today and what they can do about them. Watch now on the 11FS YouTube channel or at 11fs.com forward slash decoding.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Let's get on with our next story. So, this is one that we picked up on City AM. Uh, UK leading fintech bosses call on governments to ramp up efforts to overhaul regulation. Uh, a group of the UK leading fintech bosses have called on the UK government to ramp up efforts to overhaul regulation and build a world leading environment for the sector. Bosses at over 70 of the biggest fintech firms in the UK, including Monzo, Starling, Checkout.com, Klarna have all signed the letter compiled by industry body Innovate Finance. The letter comes a year after the launch of Treasury-commissioned Khalifa review of fintech, which laid out a roadmap for the UK to cement its place as a global leader in fintech. While praising the progress made so far, bosses have called on the fintech industry not to rest on our laurels and to build on a current momentum to overhaul regulation and create an environment where firms can grow. The leaders also call on more in Institutional investment to back high growth fintech firms and fill a funding gap that we now have here in the UK. Um, I mean, this is really interesting because actually, I mean, the UK has been sort of the leading uh real uh, infrastructure with everything that went through to enable fintech to happen. Um, and actually, we've definitely seen a a downtick in terms of not necessarily from an investment perspective, but but just fundamentally from a pace perspective with everything that we've seen. You know, I don't think it is just a a decision that the government or the FCA or the PRA have decided to just take their foot off the gas. But obviously, we've had a pandemic, we've had Brexit, we've had... Everything that that has created with regards to the 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 talent side of things within the UK, and I think all of these things are, are sort of conspiring to this sort of perception that people have sort of got bored and wandered off and started worrying about the next thing. But I don't think it's quite like that. I mean, Naz, what do you think on this one? Is this uh, is this a fair request from from so many sort of real important businesses, important fintechs in the company to you know try and put the foot back on the gas a little bit?
3: From a capital point of view, uh, I do have some sympathy because I do think, uh, and when I say capital, I don't mean raising of capital, uh, although that's clearly an issue for them. I mean, regulatory capital, because I do think, um, you know, that's a heavy upfront cost for firms to bear and it's often agnostic of like customer volume. There are kind of set requirements Uh From a conduct of business point of view and sort of helping firms uh, start, I I actually do for the regulator does a lot. You know, my previous role was at a startup and the regulator really bent over backwards to to help us. Um, The one thing I would say in terms of the UK place within the overall uh, environment is that other regulators have started to catch up, particularly in Southeast Asia, I would say. In terms of trying to create that um, uh, that kind of foundation for innovation and, and things that the FCA champions, sandboxes and others have been adopted quite widely in those jurisdictions. So we've definitely lost our differentiator in that sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the if you sort of stand back from this, we've had actually quite a significant turnover you know, particularly if you'd say the the regulator has been such a, a significant part of the the innovative landscape that's being created in the UK. We've had uh, Andrew Bailey move to the Bank of England. We've had uh, Chris Wollard leave the FCA. We've had a number of sort of senior positions in the FCA sort of change hands. I wonder if this is, I mean, for any, I wonder if this is a almost a a difficult sort of cultural transitionary period for for those regulatory companies to to kind of figure out. Well, how did this stuff happen in the first place? Is anybody still there who remembers how it happened? Do you I
2: mean, the first thing I think about is a great resignation spares no one. But um, <laughs> um, so in in terms of the, the question around, uh, I, I I still think we we have quite the the edge here. I think there's a lot of progressive attitude. I, I don't know enough about the landscape abroad to comment in any intelligent way about the regulatory comparison. But I th- I think when I look um, specifically for a company like Flux, looking at the opportunity we have here versus the US, for example, I mean, you, you can't compare the opportunity. Like here, for us, we've really ridden that wave of the open banking culture and PST2, which completely transformed attitudes at the big banks towards collaboration and working with uh, fintechs. I mean, can you imagine a conversation with Barclays even five or 10 years ago about like, hey, we want a real-time transaction API for all your customers. <laughs> We're going to do really cool stuff with that. Um, I, I can't. I I personally can't, but
0: um, Sadly, I think I think I actually had one of those conversations with them, and I got laughed out of the room. But uh, but yeah, no, it's it would have been a very different world, wouldn't it, to to make those things happen. But um, but I guess what what, what we don't want to be, I mean, the UK we've, we're steeped in history. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, but you don't want to be that. You don't want to be the people who had that great album that one time. You want to be relevant and current now. And I I guess this is what the those organisations are standing up and saying, which is like. You know, particularly when you look at, uh, you know, Monzo and Starling and uh, and, and the people who were, were really getting behind this, I don't think they're done with their journey. But they still need the, uh, if they are to, we, we shouldn't forget, all of this was brought about to create a competition in the landscape. It was brought to, to create real competition in the in, in the space. And is Starling really competing with Barclays yet? We're not quite there yet. So they still need the the support of the regulators and everybody in that sense in order to to reach that scale and, and truly create competition for for customers in the market. Um,
2: I, I would add one thing, which is I think um, you know, having worked with these partners for for a long time and now look seeing kind of both sides of the of you know the pie, if you will, working with Barclays and then Monzo and Starling as well. Something you do see is, you know, the bigger and bigger these challenger banks get, the more and more scrutiny they come under. On one side, rightfully so, like the regulator is doing its job, protecting consumer interest. On the other hand, um, you end up in a place where the pace of product development, the pace of um, every area they look at, is inevitably held back a little bit by the the process they have to go through now. And on one hand, great consumer interest protected. On the other hand, things just slow down, um, and that—that's something also to to be mindful of.
3: Uh, now, any closing point on that? Well, yeah. No, I was just going to say, look, I, you know, the regulatory pendulum has swung after the crash back to ultra conservative. Uh, we are now starting to see it swing back the other way. So, I think. We're going to see more calls like this, particularly in regard to the capital that regulated firms need to hold. And I think if we look at the recent Solvency 2 changes that were announced by the government, you know, I think that uh, there may be more of that to uh, to come in other sectors as well. Yeah, it is
0: an interesting point, isn't it? As the market matures and these organisations get bigger, as you say, Ronnie, then, you know, really the the risk for the consumer gets bigger and bigger. Therefore, the regulation has to get bigger, doesn't it? But uh, anyway, let's see what transpires on this one. No doubt we'll be talking about it again very shortly. The next story that we had was one over on Business Insider Africa. Uh, Twitter adds Paga as a payment provider for its tips feature in Nigeria. So Nigerian fintech firm Paga has announced that it has been selected as one of the payment services providers for Twitter's tips feature in Nigeria. Twitter tips features enables users of the microblogging platform, to either send or receive payments. Uh, It works in such a way that users, including journalists, content creators, small businesses, and community groups can simply link their preferred third-party payment service provider to Twitter profiles, thus simplifying payments from anywhere in the world. Suddenly, I can get paid for tweeting stuff about stuff. Like, take that, school guidance counsellor. You said it would never catch on, didn't you? Uh, Twitter initially launched an experimental version of the tips feature in 2021 and only permitted a limited group of people to use it. Since then, the feature has been made available to every Twitter user uh, above the age of 18 and is now available on both iOS and Android um, this is super interesting, but to find out more, we reached out to Paga's CEO, uh, Teo Ovisio, um, to ask about how this will work in practice and if it could potentially unlock a lot of opportunity for African creators. Let's hear from him now.
4: Hi, Fintech Insider. This is Teo Oviosu, the founder and group CEO of Paga. I'm glad to share a bit about our partnership with Twitter on Twitter Tips. The Paga app, is similar to Cash App or Venmo, but for Africa. Every user on Paga gets a justpaga.me URL. That is justpaga.me slash their username. This free URL is a perfect way for individuals, creators, businesses to collect payments from anyone globally. The partnership we just announced with Twitter brings the power of Paga's justpaga.me to Twitter. Now any creator on Twitter can set up tips by adding their PAGA username and get paid for their tweets or contributions to the wonderful ecosystem Twitter has created for us all. Once set up, people who want to tip you, click on the tips icon on your profile, then click on PAGA, and they're taken to your justpaga.me URL where they can pay you using their PAGA account, their card, or directly their bank debit. I'm very excited about this partnership. It is the first of many to come from the pilot group focused on the creator economy in Africa. And we look forward to scaling this with Twitter and also similar relationships with other social networks uh, as we build out our, our offerings to the creator economy. Thank you for having me.
0: Super cool. I, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Obviously, from an African payments context, we've seen you know mobile networks be the the sort of distribution mechanism of choice. But now we're seeing social media. I mean, are we now at a point where you know distribution of a, in Africa of uh, data connectivity and uh, and smartphone setup is actually much more prevalent than just the the MNOs routes would have been before? This is this is almost them leaping a whole set of technologies to get to this stage is is fascinating veroni what do you what do you make of this
2: i think it's really cool i think the um the social media point is interesting to think about it and i'm from brazil originally that's where i was born and um you know there's been a huge like take up of like whatsapp whatsapp payments and and that kind of infrastructure there so it's it's interesting interesting to see um and I think Africa, the African challenge, the cross-border, cross-currency challenge by itself is tremendous. I think to solve that and then solve um, payments in this way is really interesting.
0: Mm, it's fascinating. I mean, I think a few people have tried to pay me to stop tweeting, but never never <laughs> has anybody ever paid me for the tweets that I tweet. But uh, Ke- Kevin, what do you think on this one? Is this uh, almost we're, we're moving from you know, hardware to software payments in this instance, aren't we? We're moving from the the MNOs with everything, all of the controls around that. I mean, arguably this could open up uh, more, you know, KYC, uh, AML type problems with regards to, it's quite easy to get hold of a Twitter account in terms of transferring money, isn't it? Rather than it being a, a truly sort of verified thing. Uh, what do, What do you think?
1: Look, it'd be interesting to see how it pans out from a regulatory perspective, as you say. I mean, there's you know, those sort of issues that must be, yeah, I don't know how to handle it, but um, but I think it's an amazing opportunity and it seems to make a lot of sense. Um, there is actually a lot of innovation, I think, happening um, in, in in Africa. I mean, I, I get shown a lot of opportunities, startup opportunities, um, particularly coming out of Southern Africa, uh it's, it's just that for us we have to stay true to our, our model, which is you know we we invest in those companies that we think we can be add value and we can be helpful post post investing. and the fact that they they're, they're 12 hours away, it, it makes it very difficult. Um, and so you know despite that um, despite the sort of interesting opportunities, we haven't invested in anything uh, in that part of the world, but definitely there's some interesting stuff down there.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating. I think I really feel like the narrative around Africa is just fundamentally changing. And not I don't just mean this in the sense of fintech, but like it it is no longer just seen as uh, you know a, a kind of a, a third world developing nation, but actually some of the the infrastructure that's in place now is you know is, is leading in so many ways, and and in many instances, as I sort of said a second ago, because of the lack of. Infrastructure that was there a decade ago, they're actually catching up with many developed nations in many senses, which is really, really exciting to see. Uh, Naz, um firstly, haven't managed to get you to join Twitter yet have I? I've been protesting for at least 3 years, but uh, uh I was going to say this one's definitely outside of my comfort <laughs> zone anyway. But it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? If I can somehow convince you that my time spent on Twitter is now potentially beneficial to the business because we might get tips for it, then uh, I don't I don't <laughs> like calling it tips. It's it makes it sound like it makes it makes me sound so much more subservient than I'd like to think of myself in my head. But um, but maybe maybe that's just a marketing thing that um, that they can work on.
3: I think I, I was going to say, I think I think that the interaction between democratization and regulation is interesting here, because, you know, if I if I think about the point you just made, you know, <clears throat> many people in, in those markets are not going to be able to be ID and V'd in the traditional way a bank does. They're not going to be able to rock up with their passports and a utility bill, for example. Um, so I think this is something that like, the global regulatory system is going to have to get its head around because I feel the only way that uh, populations in some of these jurisdictions will get these types of services is through things like this where you have to accept that you're not going to be able to have the traditional controls that you associate um, with more developed jurisdictions.
0: Yeah. Well, even even in developed jurisdictions, though, I remember having a conversation... Uh, maybe about eighteen months ago, with with Chris Willard when he was still at the FCA, uh, and actually it was an interesting point that he made, which is like you know uh, Alison Rose or you know uh, any CEO of the UK banks pick up the phone when the regulator rings, but Mark Zuckerberg doesn't give a damn, you know. So I'm not sure Twitter or Facebook or you know the the, the sort of requirement of a regulator is that the regulated people re- recognise your authority. And if they don't, then it becomes really, really difficult in that sense, doesn't it? Um, so it is going to be uh, arguably as, as financial services becomes more and more embedded, particularly into organisations that are not financial services. This this challenge of you know who ultimately is accountable and where the risk really sits is going to get greater and greater and greater, isn't it? But uh, um, but anyway, I'm just happy I might be able to get paid some money for tweeting some stuff, so that's that's good. Uh, on that note, all right, well, there is a huge amount of stories that we didn't get a chance to cover on this, uh, and uh, many of them really do deserve a bit of a shout-out. So we're going to get
3: uh, really sort of whistle through these ones, but Naz, I think you're picking up the first one. So this is from The Guardian, but also, I mean, several other publications. Revealed Credit Suisse leak unmasked criminals, fraudsters, and corrupt politicians. So a massive leak from one of the world's largest... Private banks, Credit Suisse, had exposed the hidden wealth of clients involved in torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, corruption, and other serious crimes. A huge trophy of banking data was leaked by an anonymous whistleblower to the German newspaper Deutschen Zeitung and other papers across the globe. The leak points to widespread failure of due diligence by Credit Suisse, despite repeated pledges over the decades to weed out dubious clients and illicit funds. The accounts in question include a human trafficker in the philippines a hong kong stock exchange boss jailed for bribery a billionaire who ordered the murder of his lebanese pop star girlfriend and executives who looted venezuela's state oil company as well as corrupt politicians from egypt to ukraine i believe that the swiss banking secrecy laws are immoral the whistleblower source said in the statement the pretext of protecting financial privacy is many a figleys covering the shameful role of Swiss banks as collaborators of tax evaders. So obviously a huge story. Um, I think you know my reaction is a mixture of shock but not surprise. Um, you know, huge private client bank in is susceptible to money laundering. I mean, you uh, kind of expect it. Is the wrong is the wrong phrase, but you, you do kind of expect it. I, I think, really, the, the reaction of regulators and politicians and whether there is a real crackdown on this or not will be interesting to see. If one takes a step back and thinks about the number of AML stories there have been of this magnitude over the past, what, five years, um, they are not infrequent. So uh, I think it's particularly personal with the news at the moment. But, you know, the, this whole issue of AML... And and not just private clients, but in particular, private clients, private wealth banks. You know, the regulation is clearly not working in many, many instances at many blue ribbon name institutions.
2: Maybe. (laughs) I'm just kind of having a laugh to myself here because we were just thinking about how uh, KYC is a challenge for these social media companies and this other one. (laughs) And uh, maybe actually what they need is more data on people's internet footprints and what they're doing uh, to, to work on their own KYC programs. But uh, interesting juxtaposition there.
3: Yeah, I think the the issue with all these things generally, well, sorry, that's a paraphrasing, but it's, it's, it will be a cultural issue at the heart of it. You know, someone has seen mega dollars and then the check is not done or waved through or whatever. It's a story as old as humankind. <laughs> it is. I know I know we're going to cover this
0: one quickly and move on and the producers are going to shout at me, surely. But where does this leave Credit Suisse as well? Because obviously a, a, a leak of such magnitude by, you know, clearly, you know, dubious humans... But actually probably retaining ridiculously large balances in terms of the, uh, you know, the organization. I mean, it, it can shake a, if you're a shady character, you're probably not going to put your, your money in Credit Suisse right now. But equally, if you are a shady character, you're probably going to try and get your money out of Credit Suisse pretty quickly as well. So, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't set them up for a particularly great couple of years, I would have thought, in terms of the, uh,
3: the, the sort of fallout from this. No, I'd agree. I mean, uh, good would probably be my initial reaction because I, I do feel there should be something. But that's probably Credit Suisse got as a client for us. Sorry, consultancy on. But I do, uh, I do feel that you know there should be some sort of penalty to pay uh, for a breach of strength. Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely accountability always comes, doesn't it? It just doesn't come as immediate as uh, as justice requires it sometimes, does it? But uh, all right, let us move on, though, because it's meant to be the quickfire round. We're not doing very well, are we? Uh, next up, Doc Financial prepares for the launch of a new bank as a service platform. Luxembourg based Doc Financial has announced the development of a new banking as a service platform. Doc Financial emerged from CrossCard, a spin off of payment service provider. P Pro uh, the transformation into platform provider was initiated by P Pro founder Philip Nyland and Solaris Bank co-founder Marco wentin. Uh, Doc Financial builds on CrossCard's core business. Last year, the company made a turnover of around 14 million euros from payment cards with private and corporate customers. Doc Financial is now adding a bank as a service platform to this portfolio. Uh, We managed to reach out to Doc Financial's co-founder, Marco, uh, for a little bit more information about it. So
4: let's hear from him now. As founder of one of the major banking as a service platforms, I had the chance to witness a groundbreaking and fundamental change in the financial services industry in 2015. Since then, we could see more entrepreneurs and investors go into that direction. This is great news, really, as it is proof that this was not just a hype, but the start of something big. Offering banking as a service on a platform for fintechs, banks, and any other industry alike opened up for finally creating truly customer-centric products where the financial service becomes a mean to an end and not the end itself. When we just see the number of banks in Europe and then compare it with the banking platforms founded in the past six to seven years, we strongly believe that this market is just starting with enough space for new market participants. The mission of Doc Financial is to bring it to the next level and we will address an even wider audience. More news to come. Stay tuned
0: very cool i mean one thing i've definitely learned over the last uh uh sort of six years really is anywhere marco goes generally success follows uh and typically every organization has a really good culture where where he moves to as well so solaris bank penta like real sort of uh strain of uh, of success when it comes to it so really looking forward to seeing what happens there and uh, we'll definitely have them back on very soon all right, uh sadly that brings us to the end of the show, but does bring us to our and finally story of the week. Uh, this one was that was picked up in a few different areas, but tech times was where we we found it uh, being covered most. The pocket money pinch. So inflation fuels the surge of school kids having a side hustle, which I find amazing, I'll be honest with you. I can barely get my kids to go to school, never mind like having a side job with it as well. Um, UK children are facing pocket money stagflation good word usage. Uh, according to the latest study by kids money management specialist Rooster Money, the average amount of pocket money children got in 2021 was £6.14, down four pence from 2020 levels of £6.18, next to a 5.5 inflation rate. It seems like kids aren't exempt from the same macroeconomic pressures that their parents are facing. Whilst kids pocket money has stayed flat year on year, where the money comes from is changing. With go- to chores now earning less for them. Uh, to make up for this wage deflation, children have increasingly turned to side hustles, with the sales of old possessions on platforms such as Depop growing by 67% between 2020 and 2021, uh, performing well at school was another high earner after pay cuts for a good school report rose by 75% from £8.15 in 2020 to £14.94 in 2021. Um, To hear a little bit more about this, uh, we reached out to Will Carmichael, who is the Rooster Money CEO. Let's hear from him, and then let's get into it. The Bank of
5: England warned that households face the worst squeeze on their disposable income in 30 years as interest rates are set to peak. Our pocket money index shows that pocket money rates are largely flat year on year, and this could over time impact kids' daily spending habits. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves over the next 12 months. We're already seeing in some older age groups, the average pocket money is increasing for those likely to be most affected by inflationary pressures. And as prices continue to rise, it's likely that this will filter through to the wider age group. The good news, of course, is that we are seeing children rise to the challenge to supplement their incomes through platforms like Depop and other seller platforms where they're unlocking the value of their existing stuff to supplement their incomes. It's really important to teach children about how income falls and rises. The reality of inflation will be felt by all, what we buy, how we budget, the holidays we may or may not go on. And of course, it will be felt by each family differently. It's important that we have these conversations and what that means for us and what we can do to to combat it how you position that will come down to age and stage, but it's a great chance to talk about budgeting and also, of course, the opportunity to get entrepreneurial.
0: Super cool. Naz, uh, you're, you're a pretty hard disciplinarian. Are, are you, uh, are you teaching your kids uh, in the, uh, in the weekend all about
3: uh, inflation? <laughs> I don't give my kids pocket money. They do. Earn, actually, they do get money for like doing well at school. Um, It's interesting, like you do, they're only six and eight, but you do try, even now we're trying to teach them about, you know, keep half of the money back and you can save it up to buy, it's a trampoline, the trampoline's a big bribe for the summer. Um, I do... I'll uh, I'll be honest, with all all of these
0: tornadoes and stuff around, I wouldn't invest in a a trampoline right now, it'll end up like six houses down,
3: but... uh, (laughs) I was going to say, I definitely do think there's a point there around... Uh, the more you can do to educate them from an early age i sound such, like such a boring parent but the more you can do to educate them from an early age like you know it 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 will help cuz you know on the points we were just discussing they aren't going to have to they aren't going to have to think for themselves on a, on a lot of these things you know the old kind of service model is dying so they will need to be more self sufficient i think
0: yeah i mean it's fascinating isn't it uh, and you you know you say like you sound like a uh, you know we all sort of say we're never going to turn into our parents, don't we? And then actually, suddenly, you get to a certain age, you've got kids, you just start sounding like your parents again, don't you? And it's the same things. It's like value of money. You want your kids to understand the value of things, the value of uh, of work, the value of, you know, spending and saving and everything that comes with it. But it's really difficult as well, isn't it? Because you sort of love them and you want them to have everything in the world because I love you so much. But equally, like you need to manage that that sense so it is a really difficult balance isn't it you know i mean kevin veroni did you have side hustles as kids uh
1: yeah but look i was going to say i was just on 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 this point that you know we now have kids they all have phones and they all have there is the ability now to very easily incentivize them with you know whether it's whether it's pocket money or rewards for good reports and things like that and and I think it does work I mean it certainly works with my my kids that you know um, I've managed to keep the the garden pretty clean because uh, um, (laughs) with 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 some pocket money so and and, you know we've got apps and things it's on their phones and they can see like you know they they can see what uh, what they get for 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 jobs that have been done I, I, I think it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, Naz, I it did sound harsh saying you don't give them pocket money. I don't give our kids pocket money either, like, rare, real rare occasions, but uh, I bribe them with screen time, like, because that's what they want. They want to, they want to, and actually, like, Apple's, uh, you know, parental controls capability is just a masterstroke for basically, you know, drip feeding screen time to them as uh, as they need
3: it. But uh, other people bribing bribing them with screen time, like I feel reassured. But yeah. on the screen
1: on the screen time, let me tell you, it, it's there are ways to hack it.
3: Don't
0: tell me that. Uh, no, do believe that. in my kids? Wondered why the battery oh, came yeah. back empty. Like, but <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie, did you have any uh, side hustles as a kid?
2: I have nothing significant not beyond my my lemonade stand in the early days but um I yeah I was also motivated by like you know pay for performance so like market money for good grades and that uh that worked I think that worked really well for me yeah
0: Bizarrely, I I did have a side hustle. I did, and it was um, it was selling trees to old ladies, which sounds really shady, doesn't it? It sounds really shady, but it wasn't like a giant tree. It wasn't like a they got to come and look at a giant oak. That was, but actually, I was encouraged to plant like acorns and conkers and stuff to grow a tree that I'd then go and knock on people's doors and sell them a you know a sapling form, which was kind of bizarre. But it taught me two things. It taught me like. It took a bloody long time to grow a tree big enough that that somebody would want to buy it. Um, but also, if you're a cute kid and you turn up at a door, like nice people will give you money for most things, really. So uh, I'm not sure that would be the lesson I'd want to be teaching my kids, if I'm honestly <laughs> at this stage and, and the day and age we live in now. But, uh, but anyway, it made me a few quid, which is good. On that note, we better wrap up the show, though, because we could probably chat like this for hours. Uh, thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people learn a little bit more about you guys? Naz, let's start with you emailing me Nelson at 11 fscom There you go. For an where can people learn a little bit more about you and everything you're up to at Flux?
2: Uh, so we're at triflux.com or yeah, feel free to drop me a DM on LinkedIn or Twitter. Not not a huge Twitter user, but but I have a profile. <laughs> so I'm V Barbosa on Twitter.
0: Very cool. Uh Kevin, where can people learn more?
1: Look, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, KKM Chong on on Twitter but and everything you need to know about outward is on our website um we've uh, we've, we've got lots of information on the
4: very, very cool.
0: As for me, uh, LinkedIn, mostly these, these days, very sad. Like I used to be cool. Like, I used to hanging out on Twitter, would have got those tips, but now it's on LinkedIn. Until they provide that service over there, no tips for David, I'm afraid. All right, guys, thank you very much for joining the conversation. If you want to get involved, if you want to give us some feedback, drop us an email on podcasts at 11fs.com.
4: Hope you've enjoyed the show. It's good to be back. See you later.